Does the transfiguration transform you? Yes, you've likely heard this account before. Yes, you're probably familiar with it. Yes, you possibly believe it. None of that is to say whether or not it accomplishes its purpose for your heart. Does it change you? Are you changed by it? Does this account and what God reveals to us here, does that transform the way you think of Jesus? Does that transform the way you think of his future return? Does that transform the way you view the Old Testament and the New Testament? Does it transform your confidence in the Saviour and the Lord that you follow? Does it transform the way you respond when he speaks? If it doesn't do that, then perhaps you need to take a closer look at what we find out in these few verses. Because they ought to change your reality. In the previous chapter in Matthew, what we saw was Jesus confirming that he is the son of the living God. And what we see today in this passage is God confirming that Jesus is his son. Now whether this is an actual event that happened in front of Peter, James and John, indicated by Peter later writing that they were eyewitnesses to the event, or whether it's a vision that James, Peter and John see, indicated by Jesus in verse 9, whichever it is, God's purpose for the transfiguration still stands and still does for us what it's intended to do. What does it do for us? It does three things for us. It gives us a taste of the future. It gives us a confirmation about the past. And it gives us boldness for the present. And all of those things it does by showing us Jesus and who he is. So the first thing we'll look at this morning is this glorious glimpse of the future. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 17. Have it open in front of you if you can. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Any of us who'd claim we wouldn't be afraid and amazed to see this happen right in front of us. Have another thing coming. Your friend's appearance completely alters and he begins to shine. He was transfigured. The word we have here, transfigured, what does that mean? Well, Trans means going across, going through, beyond, a shift of some sort. Figure is the shape or form, appearance of something. And so Jesus being transfigured, meaning his entire appearance is being altered and changed. The Greek word used there is where we get the English word, metamorphosis, like a tadpole morphing into a frog, like a caterpillar, transforming into a butterfly. And so Jesus transfigures his clothes even, perhaps dirty and worn, became white and bright. His face and skin begin to pour out light. Although unlike those animals, Jesus isn't developing and progressing into some new form, but rather revealing what he has always been. Jesus isn't putting on something new here, but it's as if God is pulling away the veil to reveal to his disciples and to you who Jesus has always been. Is Jesus simply a man? 
That's a question that I discussed with some students at school in our big questions club, and none of whom are Christians, but that's a big question, isn't it? Is Jesus simply a man? Did God choose Jesus the same way he chose Abraham or Moses or David or Gideon? Was Jesus simply the next human that God would use for great things for him? One girl in year eight called Aoife said this. If Jesus was just a man, then how could he represent every human and die for their sins? Because surely he'd have sins of their own. That's a good question, isn't it? From a 12-year-old girl. You can pray for Aoife. The answer, of course, is that Jesus wasn't just a man. And of course isn't just a man. You see, God is spirit. Jesus says that in John chapter 4. God is spirit. He has no physical body. In fact, he invented the idea of physical things. Before he created them, they didn't exist. He brought physicality into existence. And so when we, his creations, his physical beings, turn against him, making ourselves to be his enemy, making ourselves deserving of his anger, God's solution to save any who would believe was for him to put on the physical flesh of you and of me. His solution to save any who would believe while remaining just and good and righteous and holy was to become one of these physical beings that he'd created. The Son of God becoming man. The Son of God who is fully God And truly God became a full, true human. And this person was given a name. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And Jesus, meaning the Lord is my salvation. And so the Son of God became the Son of a man and woman so that sons of men and women might become sons of God. What a glorious thing. And as we'll sing in a month's time in what is arguably, and easily, the greatest of all carols, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with Men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And here, on top of this mountain, Jesus, our Emmanuel, is no longer veiled in flesh. And for a brief time, that veil is pulled back to reveal this isn't simply a man. As R.C. Sproul put it, The concealed deity of Christ burst through his cloak of humanity. And Jesus shines in his glory and in his power. But hang on a moment, someone will say. Didn't Moses once shine and glow when he went up Mount Sinai, when Moses was in God's presence, and Moses was just an ordinary man, like you and like me. So how does this show Jesus to be any different to Moses? You can read of Moses at the end of Exodus 34, whose face begins to shine as he speaks with God at the top of that other mountain. And when Moses came down and the people saw Moses, Moses had to cover his face because they were afraid of the glow that Moses had. He had to put a veil over his face when speaking with other people after he'd met God. 
Is that the same with what we see with Jesus here? Is he in fact just a man like Moses who has such a close connection with God that it's rubbing off on Jesus? Not at all. We can be sure of that. You can be sure of that. With Moses, his face began to shine when he was in the presence of God. But with Jesus, his entire body, even his clothes, are transformed into light by his own presence. This isn't some outside glory being placed on Jesus. This is Jesus' own glory coming out from within him, emanating from him. Moses simply reflected the light of God, whereas Jesus is the source of the light of God. Moses shone like a glow-in-the-dark sticker. Jesus shone as the sun. And in this transfiguration, revealing Jesus' majesty and godliness, this amazing event, for now, in the time that we live in, in this transfiguration, we see a glorious glimpse of the future. Because though Jesus came to earth the first time to humanity in lowliness and meekness and humility, the second time he comes, he will be like this. He will be as he is on the mountain. The Jesus we see in lowliness and humility, that won't be the Jesus you meet. The Jesus you come face to face with one day, and you will come face to face with him one day, will be this glorious, radiant, shining, powerful, terrifying, holy, wonderful king. In Revelation chapter 1, we read, of Jesus in his full glory. John records his vision. Revelation chapter 1, John writes, Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of these seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair and his head were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And at the end of Revelation, chapter 19, John writes, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the Jesus that you will be faced with. You may think of Jesus just as that helpless baby in a manger. But will you be ready to face him as the sovereign Lord of all creation, who even the angels cover themselves in the presence of? 
you may think of Jesus as just a simple man in a tunic and sandals, but will you be ready to face him as the holy king of the universe who you will bow before? You may think of Jesus as just a a moral preacher who taught wise lessons, but will you be ready to face him as your righteous judge who holds the keys of life and death? He is the one with eyes like burning fire, the one who sees every one of your thoughts, every one of your desires, every one of your actions, who will always act himself in perfect justice, the one whose robe is soaked in blood, the one you owe your life to, the one you desperately need to do for you, what you cannot do yourself. The one with a sharp sword out of his mouth and a rod of iron in his hand. He is the one who will defeat Satan and destroy death. He, was, he is the one who will crush you on that day if he has not already been crushed for your sin. That is the Jesus I will face. That is the Jesus you will face. Either that makes you scared or that makes you joyful. Either that makes you filled with dread or filled with confidence. Because either he stands for you or he stands against you but let me warm your heart with this look at verses 6 and 7 look ahead for one moment after the disciples see this glimpse of Christ's glory and hear the father's voice from heaven they fall on their knees greatly afraid and yet what is the response of this mighty king and judge He comes close to them. He gently touches them and says, do not be afraid. This Jesus is not only full of wrath, he is full of kindness, isn't he? But that kindness will not be held out to you forever. One day the door that Christ has opened, the door of forgiveness, the door of salvation, one day he will close. And either you'll have trusted him enough to have stepped through it, or you'll have despised him enough to stay where you are. But this Jesus, who will one day return in that image of his burning glory and terrifying power, he does not need to return as your judge. He can return as your saviour. He does not need to return as your accuser, as your prosecutor. He can return as your defence. The question is, What will you make him to be today while there is still time? Will you repent, confess your sins to him, trust him to become your defense? Or will you stay in your sin so that he remains forever who he is for you today? Your prosecutor. So does the transfiguration transform you? Does it change the way you see this man? Can you see him to be this glorious, powerful, supreme king that you, in fact, are not ruler of your life, that he is the king over your soul? Does it change the way you think of his return, the way you think of 
that day when your own two eyes will see him just as clearly as Peter's and James's and John's eyes saw him. The first time he came was to open a door. The second time he comes will be to close the door. Can you see which side of his favour you will fall upon? And does it fill you with excitement? Or does it carve out a feeling of dread within your soul? Does it transform you? Second, in Jesus' transfiguration we see the perfect fulfilment of the past. As if seeing Jesus in this amazing state wasn't enough to blow the mind, add to the wonder of that the fact that Jesus is suddenly not alone. Like Nebuchadnezzar squinting into the fiery furnace to see that there are four people standing in the fire instead of just three. We can imagine Peter and James and John squinting through the light to see three people now standing where there was just one. Verse 3, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Christ. You may wonder, what would they have been talking about? You assemble these three characters from the Bible, three of the most crucial characters from the Bible, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus himself, and they're talking about something. What must their conversation have been? Matthew doesn't tell us. But thankfully, that's a detail that Luke does pick up on. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Or sometimes translated his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Their very conversation was about the thing that God had promised all that time ago in the Garden of Eden. The very thing that Jesus had been born to accomplish. His long foretold death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. That future event for Moses and Elijah, that God would base their salvation on and grant them righteousness to cover their sin because of their faith in God, that event is what they spoke about. How wonderful must that have conversation been? And so there Jesus was, standing with his forefathers as the very one who held their salvation secure. And he would turn his forefathers into sons of God. Imagine three friends. Chris, Amy, and Joe. Imagine they arrange to meet for a buffet at a restaurant. Chris and Joe arrive and get their table. But Amy's running late. Joe says to Chris, you go ahead and eat. I'm going to pay for it all. Don't worry. Chris gets his food and eats, but then has another appointment, so he has to leave. Leaving Joe. Amy still hasn't arrived, but Joe calls the waiter over and pays for the food. When Amy arrives, Joe says to Amy, you can go and eat. I've paid for it all. One arrived earlier. One arrived later, but both are paid for by the same person. Moses and Elijah came before. You and I come later. But our salvation has been paid for by the same person, by Christ. Moses and Elijah, they put their faith in God 
and the then promised future coming salvation. And God, knowing Christ's future mission, granted Moses and Elijah God's own righteousness based upon that salvation of Christ. And so you, I trust, and I place our faith in God and his now fulfilled salvation. And God, knowing Christ's completed mission, grants us his own righteousness and salvation because of Christ. They came before, you come after, but salvation is paid for by Christ alone. But why is it Moses and Elijah here? Why not maybe Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the patriarchs of Israel? That would be a fitting. Or why not David and Solomon as, as the kings of Israel? Why not Adam, since Jesus was the second Adam, to correct everything that Adam's sin had ruined? Why is it instead that we see Moses and Elijah? Why are they the Old Testament figures that we see? Here's why. They are the Old Testament figures we see because they represent what the Old Testament is about. They are the Old Testament figures we see because the two of them represent what the whole Old Testament is about. Everything God gives to his people in the Old Testament, the knowledge he reveals, the commands he puts in place, the promises he makes, can be categorized and summed up in two parts. What God tells us through his laws, what God tells us through his prophets. And so Moses and Elijah represent these two aspects of the Old Testament. Who was the primary person God used to give his law to humanity? Moses. Who was the primary person God used to give his prophecies to humanity? Elijah. God's law and his commandments came to us through Moses. God's prophecies and promises came to us through Elijah. They were the two main mouthpieces God used to speak. And so here on the top of the mountain, we see the entire Old Testament represented by these two people, Moses and Elijah, and they're standing before Jesus, the one who's bringing about the new covenant, the one who is going to perfect and fulfill and complete everything from the old. And as we heard Jesus say earlier in Matthew, in chapter 5, verse 17, he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. He's saying, now that I'm here, don't think the Old Testament doesn't mean anything anymore. I haven't come to destroy, but to fulfill. He's saying, everything that's come before me in the Old Testament isn't something unimportant, isn't something I'm getting rid of. It is important because it all points, all leads up to me and I'm the one to fulfill it all, to perfect it all. And as wonderful as that sounds, it may you leave you with a question. What does that mean? What, what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law and prophets? And how did he do that? How did Jesus fulfill the prophets? Well, the prophets spoke concerning the coming of Jesus and the salvation he would bring, being born of a virgin, being born in Bethlehem, fleeing to Egypt, making the blind see, making the lame walk, making the dead live, teaching in parables, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, having lots cast for his clothes, having his hands and feet pierced, being wounded, for our transgressions, being bruised for our iniquities, crushing Satan's head, establishing a kingdom that will never fail, 
and will last forever, all taking place to fulfill what the prophets had said. How does Jesus fulfill the law? He kept its commandments, he perfected its ceremonies, he suffered its penalty. He kept its commandments, meaning that where it forbids us to lust and to lie and to cheat, Jesus didn't lust and lie and cheat. Where it instructed us to love our neighbours as ourselves, Jesus loved even his enemies. Where it required us to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, Jesus loved God with all his heart, all his soul all his strength. He perfected its ceremonies, meaning where sacrifices only covered sin, Jesus takes away sin. Where washing would only clean the body, Jesus would clean the soul. Where sacrifices had to be repeated, Jesus would be the only sacrifice for all time. And he suffered its penalty. Meaning where the law proclaims the soul that sins will die, Jesus, the soul that never sinned, died. Where the law declared, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, Jesus became that curse for us and hung on a tree. Where the law demanded the death penalty for so many sins, Jesus suffered the death penalty for all our sins. Jesus fulfilled the prophets. Jesus fulfilled the law. And this passage in Matthew isn't the only time we see the law and the prophets being mentioned in relation to Jesus. At the very beginning of his ministry, John records in John chapter 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote. We found this one, Jesus of Nazareth. And then at the very end of Jesus' ministry, Luke records Jesus saying to his disciples, Luke chapter 24, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And so here, face to face with Moses and Elijah, stands the Messiah, the fulfiller of the law, the fulfiller of the prophets, and together they talk about everything Jesus is about to accomplish by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension. Isn't that marvelous? Doesn't that prove to us that this book hasn't just been made up by men? That this thread through history is divine, divinely inspired. It's often said that people wished They'd been there on the road to Emmaus when Jesus spoke to the two disciples about the things in the Old Testament concerning him. Wouldn't this have been an equally thrilling conversation to eavesdrop on? Hearing Jesus speaking with Moses, the chief champion of the law, and Elijah, the chief champion of God's prophecies, And they speak all about how Jesus is now going to complete everything that these two men had guarded and finally bring about what they both longed for. And isn't it interesting also that in Exodus chapter 33, God passes by Moses and Moses has to hide in a rock. He cannot look upon and see God. And then in 1 Kings 19, God again passes by Elijah in a still, small voice. 
And Elijah wraps his garment around his face. He cannot look upon and see God either. But now in Matthew 17, what do we see? Moses and Elijah both see what they had not seen. The face of God incarnate in Jesus. They no longer have to hide because in Jesus, God is with us. And then suddenly in verse 8, Moses and Elijah disappear and Jesus is left alone, signifying that the role the law and the prophets played is now complete and fulfilled and perfected in Christ. So, does the transfiguration transform you? Does it make you see how brilliant the Old Testament is? That it's more than just the boring half of the Bible. That it's more than just the half of the Bible that's no longer important. But does it show you how wonderful it is that it points to your Saviour and that He is who we now cling to? Does it show you how desperate your need is and how excellently and perfectly Jesus fulfills that need and meets that need? Does this transfiguration make you want to have Jesus even more? Knowing that he's achieved everything that we could never achieve. That he's fulfilled everything we could never fulfill. That he's perfected what we could never perfect. And knowing that he is all that is necessary. We don't have to hold on to rituals and ceremonies and practices. We hold on to Christ. Does this transform your heart? Third, in Jesus' transfiguration we see an encouraging command for the present. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. In a previous chapter in Matthew, we'd seen Jesus confirming he is the son of the living God. And now we have the living God confirming this is my son. And this isn't the first time the disciples have heard a voice from heaven. Back in chapter 3, Jesus was baptized by John and the same voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But what God says at Jesus' transfiguration and at Jesus' baptism is almost identical. Apart from one thing. Do you know what it is? God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You mustn't just accept who he is. You must then listen to him. You must then hear him. You must then heed him. If a dinner lady or a school cleaner gave a group of high school students an instruction, are they likely to listen? No. If a teacher gave them an instruction, are they likely to listen? Perhaps a bit more. If the head teacher gives an instruction, are they likely to listen? For some, no, but you'd hope so. Why? Because the more authority the person has, the more attention you're going to give them. How important the person is determines how important what we consider what they say. And it doesn't get more authoritative than God himself, the one who created me and created you, saying to every person, this is my son. He has my full 
approval. He is with you. So hear him. Let his voice be the voice you pay attention to and obey. His voice alone. And let me say, isn't it kind and compassionate and merciful of God that that is how he introduces his son? Because couldn't God rightly and justly say, this is my beloved son and he will destroy you for your sin? And yet what does he say? This is my son. Hear him. Hear him because he's giving you salvation. Because he's giving you escape. Because he's giving you restoration and life. You used to hear Moses and Elijah. But salvation and forgiveness wasn't found in them. Hear Jesus because it is found in him. Isn't God patient? Isn't God kind? Don't we deserve that not to be his response? And yet that is how he's chosen to treat us. And so all of us today receive that command from the Father. And it's a command that's so encouraging that Peter later writes about this whole event as the reason for us to trust and believe the gospel Have you ever asked yourself, what if all of this about Jesus isn't actually true? What if all of this about Jesus is just a clever myth that someone's made up? Peter has an answer for you. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so... Now we have the prophetic word confirmed. Meaning now in Jesus, we have the Old Testament fulfilled in this person. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And so Peter's giving you this encouraging command that God gave him. To heed Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to follow Jesus. So when he confirms himself to be the son of the living God, hear him carefully when he says that. When he commands you, take up your cross and follow me. Listen to him closely when he says that. When he declares that he will one day return with his angels, Hear him keenly when he says that. Remember that he's not simply a man giving his opinions. He's not simply a con artist giving his deception. He's not a philosopher giving us his opinions. He is the son of God giving us the truth. He's the king and judge of all who will one day hold us accountable to these words and whether we heard them and what we did with them. So does the transfiguration transform you? Do you listen to Jesus remembering who he is? And do you love to hear him? Are you encouraged that you can certainly trust and lean upon everything that he commands and instructs and promises. Does this whole account transform the way you see this man? And finally, I don't often have a fourth point, but today I do. In these final verses of the passage, a question you have to ask yourself, 
Have you mistaken his identity? After they'd come down from the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus a question. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This talk of Elijah's cropped up before in Matthew. I don't know whether you've noticed it. We last saw it two weeks ago in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, asking his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of God, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah. Why on earth would they think Jesus is Elijah? Well, it all goes back to a prophecy of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God speaks through Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So there in the Old Testament, Malachi prophesies that God would send Elijah, who will turn people's hearts. What does that mean? Well, let's continue in chapter 17, Matthew, verse 11. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So as the prophecy of Malachi said, Jesus is saying, You've heard it said, Elijah will come. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Well, yeah, we've just seen him on the mountain. Wait, let's not jump ahead. Jesus continues. And they did not know Elijah, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Who saw that coming? The prophecy about Elijah being sent to turn hearts is actually about John the Baptist turning hearts to Christ through preaching Christ. The disciples would have known that if they'd truly been hearing what Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That prophecy wasn't to be fulfilled literally, but rather figuratively. And that gives us an important lesson when it comes to prophecies in the Bible. While we see some being fulfilled literally, Jesus being born of a virgin, Jesus being portrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus shows here that other prophecies are not meant to be understood literally. And we have to be careful with prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet, especially in Revelation, not to be like these Pharisees and Jews who built their beliefs on what they thought the obvious interpretation was and ended up missing the whole point. There are very popular parts of Revelation among Christians today that refer to buying and selling, that refer to the mark of the beast, And there are Christians who are convinced in their own minds that those prophecies will be fulfilled in a literal sense. And because of that, it has an impact on the way they live. I think this passage gives us a fair warning that if we base some of our beliefs on things we cannot be certain of and become ardent about it as these Pharisees and Jews were, believing that Elijah was going to come, we might end up as foolish as they were proved to be. We might end up missing the point as they missed the point. And so when, most importantly, it came to who Jesus was, who Elijah was, 
so many of the Pharisees and Jews thought they understood. They'd heard the scriptures and they were happy, happy settling with their own understanding of it. What makes sense to them? What fits their view? What fits their mindset, their worldviews? And so they thought Elijah was truly returning and they missed who Jesus is. Perhaps you do that with other parts of the Bible. Perhaps you do that with the Bible as a whole. Perhaps you too hear the scriptures, hear what it says, and you're happy with settling of your, with your own understandings of the world. What makes sense to you? What suits you? And so you do your own thing and you miss who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? His transfiguration tells us who he is. He is the Son of God in human form. He kept the law's demands. He suffered the law's penalty. He completely fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament law. All so that he would go to Jerusalem and depart in dying to destroy our everlasting punishment, in rising to grant us everlasting life, and ascending to become the king who will one day return to close the door that is now open. And in the most brilliant way, all of that is summarized in the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 to 3, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the ages, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The transfiguration does three things for us. Does it do them for you? It gives us a taste of the future. It gives us confirmation about the past. And it gives us boldness for the present. And all of those things it does by showing you this is Christ. Who do you make him to be?